The National Institute for Newman Studies invites you to their conference, St. John Henry Newman and Catholic Modernism, which will take place online and in person at the Galliott Center for Newman Studies on October 17th and 18th, 2022. This symposium will explore the Roman Catholic modernist crisis from a variety of angles and methodologies and highlight the reception of Newman's thought in one of the most tumultuous epochs in modern Catholic history. Visit www.newmanstudies.org for information and registration. Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Chrisanne Valencourt Murphy. Chrisanne has a tremendous background. For 25 years, she's worked for faith-based policy advocacy organizations at a national level, including Bread for the World, a collective Christian voice urging our nation's decision-makers to end hunger at home and abroad. Chrisanne currently serves as the executive director of Catholic Mobilizing Network, which is a national organization that mobilizes Catholics and all people of goodwill to value life over death, to end the use of the death penalty, to transform the U.S. criminal justice system from punitive to restorative, and to build capacity in U.S. society to engage in restorative practices. I want to talk with Chris Ann because October is Respect Life Month, and I think we in the United States need to consider how the death penalty impacts building a culture of life, how it impacts respecting life. And October 10th is the World Day Against the Death Penalty. And by the way, from October 1st to 9th, you can join Catholic Mobilizing Network in praying a novena to end the death penalty. You may have seen the Holy Father's prayer petition requesting us to join him in praying and ending the death penalty, which, by the way, Catholic Mobilizing Network tweeted out, and he made this message in conjunction with Catholic Mobilizing Network. I think we need to try to at least understand where people are coming from who want to end the death penalty. How do they see justice? What is restorative justice? What does that mean for the families of the victims? All of these things we talk about with Chris Ann. And I think it's a conversation worth really listening to, paying attention to, and praying about, and considering your own disposition toward death penalty in the United States or the abolition of it. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And really, that is unique. You may not agree with everything that we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast. And guess what? That's okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. And for those of us who are Catholic, we need to remember that we are bound together by our faith. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. And also, go ahead and get a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stay tuned for that conversation I have with Chris Ann coming up next. 
Welcome, Chris and Valencourt Murphy, to the Gloria Purvis podcast. It's good to be here, Gloria. I am so happy to speak with you. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Chris Ann, she has done so much work. She's the executive director at Catholic Mobilizing Network, which mobilizes against the death penalty. She has more than 25 years of experience at a national level working in faith-based policy advocacy organizations, one of which was Bread for the World. And people might not be familiar with Bread for the World. Could you just give me like a high level of what Bread for the World did? Bread for the World is a national Christian organization seeking to end hunger at home and abroad. Wow, that's big work, important work, needed work. You also are the co-author of Advocating for Justice, an Evangelical Vision for Transforming Systems and Structures. You know, I guess it's safe to say faith plays an important role in your life. Can you tell us in your own words? Well, you know, I mean, I come from a Catholic family and we were, I would say, an active Catholic engaged family practicing. And my mother was a convert. My dad, he was always Catholic, but had sort of a recommitment in his middle years. Mm. And so faith was something very much talked about and acted upon and considered in our daily life at home. But when it came to kind of opening my own vocation and unlocking that, I think about when I was a kid, we received the Mary Noel Missioner magazine. I don't know if you ever had gotten those or seen it, but it really showed people who were living and working out in the world in many different countries, looking at how God is active in the world and working on development projects or with people who are, you know, suffering in so many different ways. And that for me instigated an interest in doing maybe something similar, looking at how I could be active in the world and kind of be operating from a place of faith orientation from my own Catholic tradition. Okay. So you had this example from your parents. Mm. Then you had some paperwork that came or some Mary Noel missioner that made you think about, you know, how might you be working for others in the world? So then I know you worked other places, but how did you end up with Catholics mobilizing network? I felt myself drawn to working within my own tradition. And that timing of that kind of call, kind of internal to me or, you know, in an interior way to me, also paralleled Pope Francis's visit to the U.S. Mm. That was something that I was working on at Bread for the World, how we were going to be greeting Pope Francis and what we were going to be doing around his visit in 2015. He was actually speaking before the U.S. Congress. And among the many things he talked about in his trip to the U.S., he talked about ending the death penalty. And I remember exactly where I was and hearing him talk about it. And it touched me so deeply. I had in my 20s seen the movie Dead Man Walking. Oh, yeah. With Sister Helen Pajan. And it's about a man on death row. And it's about kind of you know, he's definitely guilty and there's a murder victim family members, sister Helen's journey and the family members, the man who's on death row, his family. It's just, it's just such a humanizing story for kind of what happens to people in the communities who are impacted by the death penalty. And I was so moved back in my twenties and here I am in my, my late forties crying, listening to Pope Mm -hmm. Francis talk about an end to the death penalty because I had thought to myself, if I ever have a chance to work on that issue, Mm. I will. And, you know, in hindsight, now that I've been at Catholic Mobilizing for five years, I realized that, you know, God was really 
creating this path, all that experience to really come to a time where it's very important to work on the death penalty. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of possibility. We've referenced Catholics Mobilizing Network, but can you share the history and mission of the organization? So Catholic Mobilizing has been around for 13 years. We started in 2009 as a response to the U.S. bishops' campaign to end the use of the death penalty. And the organization was started by lay leaders, by Catholic bishops, by men and women religious, by murder victim family members, by exonerees from death row, all of whom came together and said, if we really want to mobilize for an end to the death penalty, we're going to have to create an organization to do just that. And it was clear that the U.S. bishops had been calling for an end to the death penalty even before there was crystal clarity in the catechism. The U.S. bishops have been opposed firmly to the death penalty. But there were so many executions and repeals in, in certain states. And how do we really mobilize other Catholics? How do we educate people on church teaching? How do we get them praying together? How do we leverage their support and influence so that we can save lives and end the practice. And that really needed an organized organization to campaign for such abolition here in the U.S. So we have been working to transform the criminal legal system, particularly you know, the brokenness of capital punishment, and to move the criminal legal system from punitive, which the most punitive aspect of it is where we actually kill someone Mm -hmm. for harm or crime, and to move it to be more restorative and healing, because we think that there are ways, more effective ways to keep society safe and also to address harm and lead to healing than just simply killing people who may have committed a crime, maybe even a grave crime. But how do we, how do our systems and how do our policies then, how do they exemplify how we want to be as people who offer redemption? So, you know, I'm listening with to you, Chrisanne, talk about this and to move from being punitive to healing, to being restorative, especially since we're people that speak about redemption. What have been some of the tough sells like on this conversation that you've had with other Catholics, how do you help people understand restorative justice? Well, I think it might be helpful to, you know, give some more framing about what restorative justice actually is, because it's a term that people, they often think they know what it is, or maybe have some ideas about what it is. So just for our listeners, restorative justice is a way of understanding crime and harm in terms of the people and the relationships that are impacted, rather than a law or a rule that was broken. So restorative practices seek to repair harm through transformative encounters that model Jesus's reconciling way. So just to compare kind of the traditional criminal legal system, the questions it tries to answer or how it frames harm and crime, and then restorative justice, I think it's helpful to compare them both. So traditional justice asks, you know, what was the crime? Who's guilty? And what should their punishment be? And restorative justice asks, what was the harm? Who was impacted? And what needs to be done to make it as right as possible? And so, you know, Gloria, in terms of the death penalty and, you know, how do we even go about seeking a different kind of justice? I, 
I have listened to so many murder victim family members and hearing about their tragedies, you know, the loss of their loved ones and asking them, what do they need? We can't bring their loved one back, but how do you even begin to approach a way of healing? And, you know, I think sometimes people imagine the death penalty to be a solution or, you know, kind of the closure that a, a murder victim family member might need, or that it's somehow cheaper than keeping someone in prison, or, you know, it's an eye for an eye, right? Isn't that in the Bible? I mean, right. all these kinds of arguments that you hear and come to realize that often murder victim family members, what they want most is they want accountability. They don't want anybody else harmed. They want often to have questions answered. And they want to honor their loved one's life. But I think often murder victim family members are sold a bill of goods by the traditional legal system that says, we're going to get this person, we're going to you know, keep them from harming anyone else, and this is a deterrent. And it's not a deterrent. There's evidence that shows that the death penalty doesn't deter anyone from committing a crime. And we realize that there are so many reasons that the death penalty is just not an answer to grave harm. In fact, it just creates more violence in taking another life. So I get, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I'm also thinking of that rage, you know, that rage. people might feel, mm-hmm. right? And maybe some would say maybe it's, maybe rage isn't the way, or maybe it's a righteous anger that people feel upon learning of the murder of a loved one. And the response, some would say a natural response is to, want to harm the person that did this to their family member. I mean, I know people who have had a loved one murder, a very good friend of mine Mm -hmm. um, at a parish that I used to attend. Her fiance was a police officer and he was murdered when he went out on a call. And Mm. she was beyond devastated, crushed, just she'd never marry again. And she wanted the death penalty also because of the damage that it did to her fiance and to her, what they would never have in the future. How can you help people move from perhaps this anger to want to repair something? You know, how do we help people move beyond that? Well, the path toward healing, I mean, just kind of functioning after that kind of grave harm is, it's a long road. You know, I, two of my very good friends also lost their daughter. She was raped and murdered in grad school in her apartment. And what my friends Vicky and Syl Schieber talk about is they knew that they needed to forgive. And this is not for everyone. I, I think mm-hmm. forgiveness is a, a decision and it's definitely a grace, but it's also never to be pushed or forced. But all I can tell you is that my friends say that had they not taken that route of kind of transforming that rage or that righteous anger into something else. And in their case, they, you know, they have been anti-death penalty advocates since her death mm-hmm. because they realized they wanted to honor her life. And they tell me about other families they've met who also lost loved ones and who didn't take that path of sort of a moving to transform that anger and that hurt and that trauma and how it just years set in and eat away at people, that anger and that waiting for someone's life to be taken Mm. only to find that even if 
someone was executed that didn't bring them the healing and the closure that they were looking for. So I think that there are ways to create conditions Mm. for restoration and repair. And restorative justice is one of those ways, either meeting in circle with other family members who are not involved in your case, but, you know, listening and to their stories and sharing and accompanying one another on the journey, Mm. or even listening to other people's stories who maybe committed a similar crime, not in your case, but surrogates will come into a, a safe setting and tell their stories about why they did the crime and the harm that they committed and how they've, how they repent and how they've grown and realized the impacts of their harm. I think there has to be sort of a, an opening and a, a humanizing because when we just think about someone being a monster or just someone need to be thrown away because of the harm that they've done, I think we, we almost stop the lifeblood flowing within us and mm. in them and we we just become alienated ourselves so it i'm not suggesting that every situation you have to sit you know the victim and the perpetrator right in a circle face to face i don't think that always works or it's always possible for sure but i think that there are ways to then unpack that anger and that hurt and then to try to rebuild to me it sounds like you know, the reconciliation part, where it's actually, you know, when we go to sacrament reconciliation, we are trying to repair the relationship we harmed, that we harmed the, the relationship we have with God and with the community, right? right? And this seems like the hands-on actual repairing the, the harm to the community that these violent crimes have created by having other families who share, ha- have a shared experience yeah. to be able to speak with one another. And then also on the part of persons who've done these kinds of violent crimes to have to themselves go and face families that have been harmed mm. and to have to admit what they did, why they did it, Without a doubt, most definitely. There are programs, even for example, in Chicago, the Precious Blood Ministry of Reconciliation, that put mothers together in a circle. Sometimes the mothers of someone who has taken a life and the mothers who have lost the life, they put those same mothers together because you know what? If that, if the person who committed the crime, can you imagine if they're going to prison? for years and years and years, the mother of the quote unquote perpetrator, she's also lost a son or a daughter. And so that kind of hurt and that kind of woundedness, all of a sudden you realize the mothers that may have been on opposite sides of an issue or an incident realize that they are facing and feeling some of that same suffering. So can you imagine how reparative that is where they can say, how can we get through this together? And the the criminal legal system is not set up for that kind of healing, but churches are, or they can be. And I think when churches can embrace, you know, restorative justice in its practices and see how it aligns with the gospel, aligns with Catholic social teaching, you realize that restorative justice and its practices often help us be better Catholics, be better restorers and reconcilers and healers and create the conditions for others to heal too. So I think some people may wonder, well, what are the consequences then for the person who's committed the crime? 
I think not only people want restoration, I think justice also means they there are some consequences for them. Restorative justice is not about no consequences. You know, fundamental to restorative justice is an accountability. But Gloria, you were just talking about how, you know, when people actually get to the point that they can admit that they've created a harm or they've harmed another, when they can get to that point where they're repentant, I mean, that that's transformative. That's a different kind of justice. I think that changes the world. Wasn't well, that a part of what we do when we go to sacrament of reconciliation? Most definitely. We have to admit the harm we've done. We have to admit the damage we've done to our relationship with God and to our community. And we all know that's not easy. So I, I can't even imagine having to admit this publicly. Exactly. It's really hard. And people who have harmed and who have gone through restorative practices through restorative justice processes will often say coming to the point where they can acknowledge the harm that they've created, committed, that's the hardest thing, harder than doing any time, Mm. you know? So that's, that's the kind of accountability, acknowledgement, truth telling that restorative justice is all about. Honestly, I think, again, it helps us be better Catholics. But speaking of being a better Catholic, could you help us walk us through the traditional teaching of the church regarding capital punishment? Maybe I'm going to give you a long time period from antiquity to modernity, like from then to now, just to give us a walkthrough. I'm so glad that you asked that question because I do think, Gloria, that Catholics are still confused (laughs) about what the church teaches on the death penalty. And I know this for a fact because we we actually conducted a survey with uh, Kara. We asked them what Catholics understood to be the church teaching on the death penalty. A quarter said, does the church have a teaching? Wow. Okay. The next quarter said that it's, you know, sort of pre the revision to the catechism. The next quarter understood the Catholic catechism as currently stands since 2018. So in terms of your question about antiquity to modernity with the Catholic teaching on capital punishment, you know, Catholics have been encouraged by papal and church authority to seek abolition, as I mentioned, you know, over the last 20 years. And the church started with a, I would say, a hesitant but permissive allowance for the death penalty, depending on if there was a fair trial or the gravity of the crime or mm-hmm. if society could be protected. So that was kind of like the old teaching. And then you fast forward to 1995 with St. John Paul II's Evangelium Vitae. And that mm-hmm. was quite significant in this development of church teaching because St. John Paul II recognized that there was growing evidence and public opposition to the death penalty. Evidence that, you know, the church understood that society could kind of keep itself safe. So Mm -hmm. just looking for, you know, to keep society safe was no longer like that mainstay of allowing for the capital punishment. I mean, even the Catechism of Catholic Church in 1992 was saying they were recommending against it, right? Because they were saying there were other means that are more in accord with human dignity. They didn't like condemn it, the death penalty per se, but they recommended against it if there were other means that are more in accord with human dignity. But, you know, taking it from Evangelium Vitae, where there was definitely a shift, where it really was no longer permitted. And by the time St. John Paul II came to Missouri 
to visit the United States when he was in St. Louis, he was actually asking to save the life of a, a prisoner on death row at that very time. And the governor at that time commuted because of Pope John Paul II, commuted the sentence of Daryl Meese. So that was pretty incredible. And he, at that time, he also called for an elimination of the practice of the death penalty. So it was very clear that the church was moving, you know, in this direction. And like you say, it wasn't a proponent of the death penalty, but it there was a gray area for a long time. And by the time Pope John Paul II came to St. Louis, he was also talking about you know, death penalty is cruel and unnecessary. You know, he, so he was again moving in that direction. That was repeated by Pope Benedict the Sixteenth in mm-hmm. his conversations around the death penalty, and then Pope Francis. By the time he came to the U.S. Congress, he was calling it contrary to the gospel and heavily wounding of human dignity. And so, all the way up to August of 2018, when the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith came out with a revision, an update to the Catholic Catechism, saying that the church teaches that the death penalty is inadmissible because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the human person. And she works with determination for abolition worldwide, that being the Mm -hmm. church. So, you know, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with folks about the death penalty. And I remember talking to a very well regarded priest about the death penalty. And as he was talking about, I guess what I would call like the theory behind why should we should be able to have the death penalty and all these things. I was saying, but what about incompetent lawyers? You know, they don't have a good defense. And he's like, oh, no, no, of course. This is all, of course, they'd have to have a good, strong, vigorous, competent defense. And I, <laughs> and I was like, well, you understand <laughs> in reality that straight up is not the case, right? And he just sort of like waved it off and was still talking like, I would just say ivory tower kind of discussion on it, but not really understanding. I mean, even looking at what happens with the death penalty in the U.S., how do we look at that? Is it an equitable system? I do think there is a this myth that if you are sentenced to death, it's because you are the worst of the worst and that you have been given you know, access to legal defense and the evidence has been used and, you know, there's been a trial and it's been unanimous and, you know, that there has been the path of justice has been journeyed down. And I don't think that if you actually talk to people who have received death sentences, that's the story. You know, you often find out that people who are in poverty don't have as good of access to lawyers. You often find out that there's some kind of unfairness in how the sentence was applied or that there's maybe a white victim and an an African-American or person of color who is the perpetrator. And you find that there's discrepancies in how sentencing is admitted. You also find out that it's often people who are struggling with adverse childhood trauma or adverse childhood experiences or people with intellectual disabilities or other kind of mental illness that are sitting on death row today. It's almost a case of, you know, targeting people who are most vulnerable to sit on death row. Mm. So the least valued life, the persons whose lives are least valued in our country may be the ones most targeted for death row. In other words, if you fall in a certain category of person that's considered mm, not so valued, 
the system, if you will, will go after you for the death penalty, whereas someone else in a similar situation may not get even a death penalty case. Is that what you're saying? Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, in this country, it depends on where the crime occurs. So there's a geographic arbitrariness to where death penalty is applied in this country since about half of the states have it. It depends on which county you are in and who's the prosecutor in that county. And it depends if that prosecutor is running for office or has political aspirations. I mean, it boils down to a lot of that kind of really ugly underbelly and racism often as well that props up the system of capital punishment. And I think for any person who, you know, feels like they have all the answers at the theoretical level, you just need to read a couple stories about people who are sitting on death row and the backstory of why they're there and to really realize that this is no gold standard of justice. Mm. In fact, it's the tip of the iceberg for a broken criminal legal system. It makes me think when we talk about justice and, you know, justice in the sense of people receiving what they deserve. I keep thinking when I hear about the brokenness in the lives of so many people, the perpetrators as well, that they deserve better than what they have gotten. And how can we give them better now? Mm. And I think that's a harder question, right? Because the death penalty just cuts off off that whole discussion or how we might ameliorate the human condition, right? It sort of just cuts it all off. And maybe that seems to be the easier thing, but I also wonder if also psychologically people in this country are like, well, what do we have if we don't have the death penalty? Mm. How are we supposed to do this if we don't have the death penalty? Well, that's just it. It's a failure of imagination, you know? And I think for people who believe in law and order, they want to feel like when something really bad happens, we have to be able to do something, you know, to keep people accountable. Mm -hmm. And I think that we haven't spent enough time thinking about how we can create systems and structures that allow for healing and that allow for rehabilitation. And I think that's the work that Catholic Mobilizing tries to do in teaching people about restorative justice and its practices. But I think that's also the hard work that we have to do to change a system that we know is broken. We'll be back in a minute. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You know, one of the things that happened recently, and I'm sure you must be super excited about it, is Pope Francis's video calling upon the faithful to pray for the death penalty to be legally abolished in every country. Mm-hmm. How did that come about with Catholic Mobilizing Network? Well, I was I received a phone call in July from the Pope's Worldwide Prayer Network, letting me know that Pope Francis had designated the month of September for the global abolition of the death penalty. And that was pretty exciting news. I mean, it's not like we haven't heard Pope Francis talk about the death penalty before. It's something that I think is near and dear to his heart. But his monthly prayer intentions are a time where Pope Francis likes to share with the globe some special aspect of life that we 
all sharing together and how to lift it up and spotlight it and pray for it together as a as a unified church across all the countries. And so the fact that the Pope wanted to lift up global abolition of the death penalty means so much particularly here in the United States. It's the month that leads up to our Respect Life Month in the month of October. Mm -hmm. It's also leading up to the World Day Against the Death Penalty on October 10th. And it's also a time when here in the United States, the particularly the state of Oklahoma, has just threatened to kill 25 men on its death row, one man a month for the next two years. So you know, we have death penalty abolished in many states. It's alive and well in a number of states here in the U.S. And we have this particularly kind of gruesome and macabre invitation for executions by the state of Oklahoma. And I'm delighted that Pope Francis's messages fall right in the heart of, of all that's going on to condemn such a death dealing practice. You know, one of the things that I think about is I remember Cardinal Hickey in the Archdiocese of Washington was talk to people like, well, why do you serve so many people who aren't Catholic? And he says, we serve so many people who aren't Catholic because we are Catholic. And, uh, <laughs> right? And so what this call with Pope Francis is doing will be difficult for so many because, you know, he's asking us to look at our faith and do the harder thing, the more perfect thing, really, I think. And I already think right now we struggle with, we have an anemic understanding of human dignity mm. because we only want it to be the perfect innocent <laughs> person. But these cases and these situations that are a challenge to us very much make us have to, I think, grapple with what do we say we believe and what does human dignity really mean? And it calls on us to respond, maybe not the way the criminal legal system says, but according to what our faith says. And so what is a faith ask us to do with people who've committed these most heinous things? We have to remind ourselves they're made in the image and likeness of God. They are worthy of dignity and respect. Definitely. I mean, Brian Stevenson um, from Equal Justice Initiative in Alabama, mm -hmm. he's kind of well-known. It was yeah. uh, He wrote the book, Just Mercy. He's a death penalty lawyer. Sister Helen, she's a congregation of St. Joseph's sister, and she mm -hmm. is an anti-death penalty activist, you know, internationally known. They often talk about people who have committed a crime are worth more than the worst thing that they've ever done. And how do we allow and honor human dignity to shine through, even when someone has committed a harm, even a grave harm? And so how we address victims and perpetrators when a harm has been or a crime has committed is really important. It says something about us. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about also how the death penalty also taken the lives of innocent people. Um, I remember, yeah. historically speaking, I wasn't alive, but the case of the 14-year-old African-American boy, George Stinney, in South Carolina in 1944, was wrongfully convicted and executed. And even his process within, um, when he was taken into custody, they offered him some food if he would sign these papers or admit mm. to some things. And so mm -hmm. he is, he was hungry. And so just the manipulation to get this child to agree to something that wasn't true and then to wrongfully commit. And he was executed. It was it was a gruesome, horrible. And it was only in the last few years, really, South Carolina was like, oh, you know, that was wrong. We're sorry. He wasn't really guilty. But you still had people saying, yeah, he was this bad kid, this horrible person. He deserved that. It seems like we even don't come to grips with how often things don't work, right? And 
it's so permanent. The death penalty is so permanent. When someone is executed, you can't undo it. Well, it's true. I'm glad you mentioned people who are innocent on the row. I mean, really up to this point, we've been mostly talking about, you know, people who maybe had committed a crime. But when you talk about people who never committed the crime and who are still serving sentences, since 1976, there have been 190 individuals exonerated from death row. So that means they should have never been there in the first place. The state of Florida has had, I wouldn't say the majority, but percentage-wise, has had the largest percentage of exonerees. Those are people who are innocent that should have never received capital punishment in the first place. I guess I wanted to say one other thing, Gloria, about, you know, we hear Pope Francis, we know that the popes leading up to Pope Francis were talking and moving certainly very much in that direction of moving away from the death penalty. We now know that there's crystal clarity, there's no exclusions, no exceptions, there's no death penalty permitted in the Catholic teaching. But I think Pope Francis in Fratelli Tutti, so his latest encyclical, he gets beyond even sort of the legal aspect of the death penalty, which he's called for in the video. Of course, he's called for abolition worldwide, legal abolition. But he also goes kind of a step deeper and he starts talking about revenge and vengeance. He mentions it 12 times in Fratelli Tutti. And he knows that I'll just speak to the U.S. context, that there is a bit of an addiction to vengeance. And I Mm. think that's how we end up with the system of capital punishment and the criminal legal system in general being a punitive system. And this eye for an eye, you know, when we did the CARA study, the Center for the Applied Research in the Apostolate, when we did a study on the death penalty and restorative justice in general, just to understand how Catholics understood those issues, when we asked a freeform question about how people felt about, you know, what, what should happen with someone who has committed a murder, an eye for an eye, an eye for an eye. It's such a knee-jerk reaction people, mm. people go toward. It's like they have forgotten that Jesus flipped the script on an eye for an eye. You know, we haven't made that transformation of toward mercy, toward healing, you know, toward moving in a way that's a different kind of justice. And I think that's the harder, deeper work that we have to do in the U.S., but probably across the globe when it comes to capital punishment and generally in vengeance. And you have something called a mobilized mercy toolbox, right? What does that include? I'm imagining this will help yeah. help us. And our listeners will be saying, well, how do we do this? And what is this? Well, I mean, in terms of the campaign around abolition for the death penalty, absolutely. Mobilized mercy helps Catholics get engaged and people of goodwill around the Pope's video about the Pope's prayer and his intention for the global abolition of the death penalty. So there's information on how you can share what the Pope has said, how you can use social media graphics and you can tell your friends and kind of raise the awareness in that way. But it also is a chance for Catholics and again, people of goodwill to just learn more about the death penalty, to understand what's happening in the U.S. and where it's alive and where it's being used and you know what's at stake. So there's, there's all sorts of ways that we can in short order, get people up to speed on what's happening with capital punishment. So Mobilize Mercy is our campaign around the Pope's video. I would say restorative justice in general, learning more about a different approach to harm and violence and crime and how we can begin to reimagine a different kind of justice. That Mm. doesn't mean we don't keep people accountable. 
it doesn't mean we don't do the hard work of really finding out the truth and holding people to account, but it does mean that we have an eye towards honoring everyone who's involved and seeking ways to restore and rehabilitate and allow for there to be healing. Amen. Is this any different from the Mercy in Action Project? Yes. The Mercy in Action Project is around executions. So every month, Catholic Mobilizing Network, through the Mercy in Action Project, will send out emails to give people exactly the information they need to know about who is up for imminent execution and how people of faith or goodwill can write letters to either the boards of pardon and parole or governors so that they can seek clemency for that person's life because they are condemned man or woman. And we, of course, want to seek to halt their execution so we can be involved in that last urgent appeal. So that's through the Mercy in Action Project at CatholicMobilizing.org. You know, I think this is a harder thing for people to do. I was just before we wrap, I want to say I spoke with a young lady a long time ago whose parents were peace activists. And she was telling me, you know, the people think being a peaceful response to violence is like so easy. She says mm. the kind of self-mastery and self-control it takes, she says, is probably even unimaginable for so many people. But we have the faculty of reason. We have just a way that we can master ourselves. And so in a way, this to me is asking us to master our response to harm. We can choose to respond differently. Thank you so much, Chris Ann, for all the work that you're doing and for coming on the Gloria Purvis podcast to discuss this and give us some things to maybe think about. It's great to be with you, Gloria. Thank you. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and joining with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to click follow to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app and leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and is engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.